Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Back Room. I'm Andy Ostroy. My fellow Americans, we meet tonight at an inflection point, one of those moments that only a few generations ever face, where the direction we now take is going to decide the course of this nation for decades to come. We're not bystanders of history. We're not powerless before the forces that confront us. It's within our power of we, the people. We're facing the test of our time. We have to be the nation we've always been at our best, optimistic, hopeful, forward-looking, a nation that embraces light over dark, hope over fear, unity over duty, stability over chaos. We have to see each other not as enemies, but as fellow Americans. We're good people. The only nation in the world built on an idea, the only one. Other nations are defined by geography, ethnicity. But we're the only nation based on an idea that all of us, every one of us, is created equal in the image of God. A nation that stands as a beacon of the world. A nation in a new age of possibilities. Because the soul of this nation is strong. Because the backbone of this nation is strong. Because the people of this nation are strong. The state of the union is strong. Here, here. That was Joe Biden Tuesday night delivering his very powerful State of the Union uh, address. And we're going to get to that in a second. Uh, excited about today's show. We have Lincoln Project's Reed Gallon coming up in a little bit. And let's start off with our two big things. The first one being the State of the Union address. It was a really powerful, forceful, passionate, clear speech by Joe Biden. And uh, I think it delivered delivered on so many levels. So here's, here's a few of my big takeaways. One thing about any state of the union, but in particular this one Tuesday night, is that if you're sitting at home and you're a senior and you're a college student and you are needing health care, all you need to do, you know, if, you, if you're a blue collar worker, or working class, middle class, all you need to do is just watch the Republicans in the room. They never applaud at any of the things that are important to you. So, like, if you're sort of up in the air, it's like, hmm, should I be voting for the Republican Party? Hmm, I'm, I want to be in a union. I need public education. I need all the things that help you in this world. None of them ever get applause by the Republican Party. Just an interesting observation. Check it out next January, next uh, next February. Biden spoke for about 72 minutes. At times, he spoke directly into the camera. He looked right at home to the viewers at home and spoke to them about what's important to them. I think that was, that was great. Uh, a, a big highlight was how he masterfully handled the, the Social Security and Medicare issue, pinning Republicans down, or actually forcing them to stand up for senior citizens and uh, agree that they won't cut Social Security and Medicare. And they were not happy about that, and they accused him of lying about them. Yet we now know from the last couple of days that people like uh, Senator Rick Scott of Florida, I mean, he put out a paper, you know, that all federal legislation should sunset after five years, which means it would all go away and then Congress has to re-vote on it if they think it's important. Uh, that sounds like a cut uh, to Social Security and Medicare. You have Mike Lee who stood there and was like, oh my God, what are you talking about? Cut Social Security and Medicare? And then video popped up, of course, of him saying, I exist, basically, to cut Social Security and Medicare. And then you have Ryan Zinke, 
uh, a new congressman from Montana who, who said, I am open to review and sitting down there in, in an honest dialogue. You know, well, what does that mean? That means they want to cut. So, and that was a moment where Marjorie Taylor Greene in her classless mode uh, just screamed out liar. And, and the heckling that took place, let's, let's go to that clip for a second. Here in the people's house, it's our duty to protect all the people's rights and freedoms. Congress must restore the right and the... But I will make no apologies that we're investing in, to make America stronger. Investing in American innovation and industries will define the future that China intends to be dominated. Investing in our alliances. Fentanyl is killing more than 70,000 Americans a year. You got it. Now, that was a State of the Union address, not a WWF uh, wrestling match. I mean, what classlessness and disrespect to the presidency, the institution. Back on the Social Security issue for a second, uh, Biden was on the stump yesterday, and he said, Republicans' dream is to cut Social Security and Medicare. Let me say this. If that's your dream, I'm your nightmare. That was awesome. So Joe banged it out of the park, in my opinion. He even, I think, took uh, care of the question of, uh, is he running again when he kept saying, I'm going to finish the job, finish the job, finish the job. Another great takeaway was Mitt Romney, like beating the shit out of George Santos. Like that was just like a little extra icing on on the cake. Uh, yeah, well, Mitt Romney was actually delightful when he actually pointed out what embellishment is and compared it to inflating a grade as opposed to saying you went to a college you never even attended. And essentially, I thought what you pointed out about back and forth with Marjorie Taylor Greene was fantastic to see Kevin McCarthy's face behind Biden. It was it was a delight. Yeah. No, I mean, apparently he told them all up front, like, sit down, be quiet, don't embarrass us. All the things he told them not to do, they did. Um, At first, when I heard that, you know, the, that, that clamor in the background, mm -hmm. I was thinking something terrible had happened. And then I thought, is this some perverse, you know, price is right, you know, game that's happening? But But it can't be. This is the State of the Union. And it was just horrified it just shows you who they are at their core but um, it was it was the prices right because they fundraise off of it so of course and um you know getting back to romney just for a quick second I don't think for a second that part of what he did was performative because he's about to toss his hat in the ring and that gives him national exposure everyone was talking about romney this week and he's a smart guy and i actually the, the time could be right for, for romney Brings us to our second big thing of the week, uh, which we're just going to touch on real quickly because it's breaking news as of last night. And that is that uh, January 6th, special counsel Jack Smith uh, issued a subpoena to former Vice President Mike Pence, directly to Mike Pence, not to an organization or a PAC or a company, to Mike Pence, the man. This should be a clear indication to anyone where this is headed. And I've said it before a million times. I'm going to say it again. Donald Trump is going to be indicted, guaranteed. Yeah, I just want to point out how pathetic Mike Pence is that they had to subpoena him because he could have gone in without a subpoena, but that meant that he wasn't willing to do it. I think he's happy to go and do this, but he needed to be dragged to the table so that he can maintain, you know, to the base that like, hey, you know, hey, look, you know, they dragged me to it. Former vice president has to be subpoenaed to talk about. Yeah, no, it's boss. historic. It's historic. 
Um, so that brings us to this week's winners and losers. I'll start. My winner, Joe Biden, for delivering the best speech of his career, hands down. My loser, the Republican Party, for its juvenile, classless, disrespectful, state of the union heckling. My winner, LeBron James, LeGoat, breaks Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's NBA scoring record that had eluded generations of superstars. My loser, I agree with you, Andy, but more specifically, Sarah Huckabee Sanders for her batshit crazy rebuttal. My winner is the brilliant representative Maxwell Frost of Florida. He's the youngest member of Congress at only 25, and he managed to upend Wednesday's weird Twitter hearing. Uh, and what's best of all is he managed to get in the congressional record uh, the phrase pussy ass bitch, which he had read into the congressional record by a witness from Twitter. And for my loser, I'm going to have to go sticking with Twitter on this one, Elon Musk this week, because first we had the failed GOP free speech Twitter hearing, uh, and then it leaked out that only 180,000 U.S. users are actually using a shitty blue checkmark service but charging $8 for. And he just fired his senior engineer because the engineer had the audacity to tell him that he's less popular on Twitter, and that's why his engagements are down. All right. Well, that brings us to our weekly rant. I want to talk about all this Biden should shouldn't run again nonsense. You know, because he's too old. That's right. This unprecedentedly successful first-term president, who for 72 minutes Tuesday night delivered the strongest, most passionate, flawless speech of his career, somehow achieved it all despite being a weak, feeble old coot. An example of this shocking ageism is Michelle Goldberg's New York Times op-ed this week in which she writes, quote, Biden has been a great president. He's made good on an uncommon number of campaign promises. He should be celebrated on Tuesday, but he should not run again, end quote. She cites his historic diplomatic, economic, and legislative accomplishments, but then summarily reduces them to a pile of rubble with misguided judgments about his supposed diminished mental acuity, like stumbling over words, which she claims, quote, is a tendency that can't be entirely explained by his stutter. She warns of another grueling campaign and polls suggesting Democrats want somebody else ignoring the countless recent polls that have been embarrassingly incorrect. Goldberg's op-ed is illogical, irresponsible, and self-destructive. Great first-term presidents like Biden most definitely should run again, no matter how old they are. Make no mistake, the man we saw Tuesday night was fired up, full of energy, and demonstrating more mental and physical stamina than many politicians half his age. This is not some weak, feeble old coot. President Biden made it perfectly clear Tuesday night. Not only are the critics wrong about him, but yes, he's definitely running again. Let's bring in our guest, Reed Gallen. He is the co-founder uh, of The Lincoln Project and host of The Lincoln Project podcast. Reed, welcome into the back room. Thanks for having me. So before we get started with all the usual political craziness. So I always like to peel back the onion a little bit and uh, dive into someone's past and give our listeners a little bit of a, a you know, background on, on, uh, on who we're talking with, because you don't get to hear that very often, especially when you're watching cable news and you're on like a 90 second or two minute hit. Right. The first question is, is more of like a, let's get a little bit of a window into the soul kind of thing, which is one of two questions when we ask at the beginning, when we ask at the end. First one is, are you a dog or a cat person? I am a dog person. I have two dogs, two mm -hmm. black labs, one eight and one six months. Mm -hmm. Were there ever any cats uh, in Reed Gallon's orbit? There were as a child. Um, 
my parents had cats and I am allergic to cats. Uh-oh. And it was fascinating to see. Uh, we, we had this, we had this, uh, we came to an understanding a few years ago that my parents didn't believe I was allergic to cats. And I said, did you believe that I was like sniffling and my eyes were watering just because I was so sad as a child? <laughs> um, no, it was because, Possible. Uh, because yes, I grew up, I grew up with cats and, and, and I don't want to say deathly allergic, but violently allergic to them. Mm-hmm. And so the assumption then being that you were not terribly sad as a child at all. Um, I might have been, but certainly I was able to cover it up with my, my again, my vicious allergy to felines. But I will say this, because I'm allergic to cats, Andy, and I leave them alone, of course they love me, mm-hmm. right? They love you when they want to love you. That's See, that's the well, key that's, for me. Yes. I'm a dog person. I do have two cats, largely, because of my daughter. But my dog, I could pet him all day long, and he's like, just keep petting me, Andy. I love it. My mm-hmm. cats are like, oh, man, this is awesome. This is so awesome. Now I'm going to scratch your eyes out. And that's right, exactly. literally the relationship between me and my cats. So I, I don't yeah, understand sounds cats. Sounds like one of my daughters, too. <laughs> Teenager? Teenage daughter? Almost. Oh. oh, so you're not there yet? No, oh, oh soon. Jeez. Poor guy. So tell me just a little bit about your childhood. Were you, were you always into politics as like a little kid, or did that come later in life? When did you first get the uh, bitten by the political bug? But what were you like as a kid? Uh- well, actually, I mean, I grew up outside of, just outside of Washington, D.C., so mm-hmm. my dad worked on Capitol Hill uh, oh, okay. starting in about 19, probably 79 or 80. He worked for then-Congressman Dan Quayle, mm-hmm. then-Senator Dan Quayle um, from Indiana, um, and then went on to work for, uh, you know, uh, the chairman of the NRCC, which is the Republican House Campaign Committee. So I like to say that other kids, uh, you know, went to summer camp, like I went to the office with my dad, so... Um, you know, I started going to, you know, Republican National Committee headquarters probably when I was seven or eight. Mm. Um, all all kids love that, by the way. To me. That's like every kid's dream to do that. Yeah, it was. Yes. And so, you know, look, I, I have been washed in the blood of it since really almost I can remember. Um, I had this dream once I got to college that I'd be a journalist. But, you know, through by hook or by crook, that was just going to take too long and yada, yada, yada. So uh, here we are. Right. So it was uh, it was always something. But look, growing up in Washington, D.C., it wasn't an unusual thing. Right. Everybody was connected somehow to politics or the government or both Mm -hmm. uh, for the most part. So a lot of your friends similarly had parents who worked in the business, so to speak. Certainly in the business. But, you know, I had a buddy whose you know, dad was a colonel in the Marine Corps who Mm -hmm. was stationed at, you know, the Pentagon and another one who was a an attorney who had been a former Navy pilot who was an attorney at the FAA and um, one more who worked for a big defense contractor. So again, I wouldn't say necessarily the the business of politics, but certainly the business of Washington. Mm-hmm. And so what, when do you remember the moment where it was sort of like, I need to be in this business. I need to do this for a living. No, because I don't, uh, it was just all, you know, it's like some people grow up in Hollywood Right. And they go into the they go into the entertainment business. Some people grow up in New York and they they go, you know, their dads were lawyers or their moms were bankers or whatever. And that was the family business. So I I, I don't think it was ever a time when I thought I was going to do something else. But, you know, uh, you know, five degrees one way or the other, you know, maybe I'm standing in Yellowstone as a park ranger. I just don't know. Right. Right. But I know I'm not good at math. I'm not good at science. Right. Uh, the only things I've ever been good at were, you know, writing and all that. So, you know, we all 
you know, most people in politics do sense in public affairs or public relations and that kind of stuff. So it was probably always going to be somewhere in that, you know, sort of political slash creative space because I'm just not really good at anything else. Mm -hmm. <laughs> After all these years being in the business, is there a moment where you're like, shit, should have been a fireman? Just like I You know, that's a great question. I'm sure there were, you know, um, you know, there are there are those moments, right? You know, 2016, right? Is Trump when, when the the moment I realized Trump was going to win, um, you know, first sitting on an airplane flying back from New York, uh, watching the screen and and looking at returns coming in from Florida and places like North Carolina and Virginia, going something's something's not right here, uh, and then you know, getting home and watching more returns and being like, wait, 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 Pennsylvania doesn't look right at all, uh, and then waking up going. Did I really have I really spent my entire life doing this so it could come to this outcome? Um, and so, yeah, there are moments of it. Uh, but, um, you know, the problem with with being a campaign person, right, is that for all of the the heartbreak, for all of the hard hours and everything else and the cyclical nature of it, right, and in the, in the inherently unstable nature of it, there are times when you're like, I can't imagine doing anything else. Mm -hmm. And certainly that's where I am now in my life mm -hmm. it's funny you, you remind me of of election night 2016 <clears throat> i always remember that saturday night live skit with i think it was dave Chappelle and chris rock where right. they're standing behind yeah. the couch looking at all the white liberals who are still thinking, yeah because like, they're like we told you <laughs> but like like guys like you on the plane like you because you're in the business you were probably like oh this shit looks bad it's over he won whereas guys like me at like two in the morning were still like we haven't counted to cal county yet like, you know, there's, we're still right. hanging on counties. I watched The Lincoln Project on Showtime. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad somebody did. Yeah. I, I mean, part of it was kind of like The Real Housewives. It was like chock full of drama, which I didn't expect really, because I didn't really know the deep, deep backstory of a lot of the, you know, interpersonal right. stuff that was good. So, but I, I did find it a, a really amazing. And um, uh, is there going to be another uh, season of that or? Or was no. That it? Well, no. not starring me anyway. <laughs> Somebody else wants to do it, they can do it. They can they can have cameras follow them around for months on end. Uh -huh. no, that is a that at least for, I, I'm only speaking for myself here, um, and I think probably for the Lincoln Project. So that was a singular experience for us. Yeah, you know, it's it's a it's a very surreal sort of experience. One is you you know, there's always these talks like you know when you when you're part of something like this, you you get used to the, you get so used to this sort of crew of people being around you all day uh that you sort of just start taking it for granted um and then when they're gone like you notice the the sort of space they've left um but i would also say that you watch yourself on screen and andy i know this sounds like this is an old trope but you know you really can't lie to the camera no right you can do it maybe in a in a 90 second msnbc or cnn or fox news hit mm -hmm. right you can't do it day in and day out Right when when the the eye is trained on you all the time, you, the best of you, the worst of you, um, it 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 will reveal all. Yeah, I also loved how they had you all like living in a house, like The Bachelor, except there was no uh, well, I there lived, was no hot we, women. We recorded so that here at Park City where I live, so uh -huh. thankfully I didn't have to do that. Uh -huh. I lived in my own house. Mm -hmm. So tell me about the the Lincoln Project podcast quickly. What's what's like the what's the main goal of it, and like what do you what do you really set out to accomplish with each episode 
Sure. So we, you know, the, the, the podcast for the Lincoln project was one of those things back when we started in late 2019 and about May of 20, I said, you know, we should have a podcast because mm-hmm. why not? Everybody has a podcast. Shit, so I we do. did it and it, and it, yeah. And it really took off. And so in, I took over as the host in January of 2021. And, you know, for me, it's really about sort of demystifying a lot of what goes on not only in politics, but also in this, as we see it, this fight for American democracy. Um, it's making sure that there are voices that need to be elevated, that are doing this work day in and day out, mm-hmm. that um, that are heard, because these people are so smart, they they often work, you know, for little to no what you know money, mm-hmm. right? They 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 basically spend all their time doing this stuff. They are they are oftentimes not the most famous people, right? But they are the best at whatever it is they do, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I also enjoy uh, immensely having, um, you know, the crossover there is, you know, people who, whether or not it's journalists or activists or thinkers, you know, criti- you know sort of social critics who are writing books about this time mm-hmm. in our country or writing histories that have a, a good parallel to this time in our history. Um, and so it's really about making sure that, you know, look, I think we have about 2 million listeners a month, um, making sure that we can, you know, I, if, if I am using big words and being high minded and not, uh, being curious myself, then folks won't listen and, and people won't get from it what they need, Mm -hmm. which from my perspective, which is to be able to communicate, well, does any of this really matter? Mm -hmm. Why would you do this? Or did you see that thing? Oh yeah. I can tell you why they did that. Right. Uh, because if you look at how, and I'm going to call it the, the, you know, the, the MAGA movement, and it is a movement, if you see how it operates and you can break it down, it's not that complicated, right? It's very loud. It's very noisy. It's very crazy, but it has its own inner logic and its own inner constructions mm-hmm. that make it a very, very effective mover of messages and information to its people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we want to we want to break down a lot of the sort of opaque nature of why these people do things. Mm-hmm. Why does Tucker Carlson say this crazy thing? Why does so-and-so say this crazy thing? Why does Marjorie Taylor Greene do what she does, right? Because oftentimes it's easier just to say they're all nuts, none of it matters. Who could really vote for these people? You know what? We're a 50-50 country, Andy, mm-hmm. and a lot of people vote for these folks. Mm-hmm. Um, I listened to your episode where you took listener questions and uh, i gotta say you you were you ever like a high school teacher or or because you're pretty good at explaining shit in a in a uh, uh, not I a high one class i taught one class at the university of southern california a dozen years ago me and a, and a buddy of mine i was the republican he was the democrat it was pol- uh, public relations and political campaigns mm-hmm. we were terrible professors uh, because we were adjuncts. We had no idea what we were doing. We had like a two hour class on how to be professional. And I would say that we, whatever the syllabus said we were going to do, we probably never got to. Mm-hmm. But I think that the, the kids in the class were eminently entertained mm-hmm. just by war stories alone. And we tried to, you know, based on whatever it is we were discussing, weave in the real world aspects of those things. Uh, it was also good news because those kids were so much smarter than we were. Um, but have I ever been a high school teacher? I haven't. Um, I don't think that my level of patience, it's one thing to talk into a microphone, Andy, as you know, it's another thing if I had to deal with 20, you know, 16 year olds, I think my level of patience would probably not be so forbearing. I didn't like my own teenager 
let alone like the, <laughs> the thought of dealing with other kids. Right. No, when you like this one person asked you about the debt ceiling, just the way you explained it uh, in a very relatable way without sounding condescending or talking down to her. Uh, yeah. I think it was a her. It was very, you know, teacherish, and I and I think I think your listeners really relate to that. But I, but I, I think this is, the, but but Andy, I think you know this too because you spend so much time behind a microphone. Which is, um, if you're in if you're in any sort of communications business where you're, trying to, unless you are like part of Mensa or something, mm -hmm. right, or you are talking about the thermal dynamics of a rocket going to Mars where mm -hmm. like, you know, the math doesn't have numbers anymore. Now it has letters, mm -hmm. right? Like sigmas and those other squirrely things. Um, you have to respect the people you're talking to. And that doesn't mean that you dumb it down, but it also doesn't mean that you believe that you think they're stupid. Right. Um, and I think that's another part too, that we see, which is I have a lot of friends, right? Some I speak to still, some I don't who are Republicans, who I know to be of the highest level of intelligence. Mm -hmm. They are now part of something I can't understand, mm -hmm. right? It frustrates me. In some cases, it breaks my heart, but I know they're not dumb. Does that make sense? And so, mm -hmm. um, you know, and we already see, you know. So let me, let me just ask you, because I, I hear this yeah. a lot. If they're not dumb, what are they? Are they just racist? Because that's my opinion. Um, th there are some. But I think that's overly simplified. Um, it's he, here's here's I think the most frustrating, angering, and again heartbreaking piece of this is I don't necessarily think that these people would consider themselves racist, and I don't know that even I would consider themselves ra them racist. But Andy, what concerns me is that they're willing to go along with people that are mm -hmm. <clears throat> for whatever reason. Um, it and, and look, I hear this a lot. Look, I don't like the Republican Party. I don't like Trump. But the Democrats, they're nuts, right? They're socialists. They're communists. And what I say to that is, well, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to be a Republican just because you don't like Democrats, one. And two, let me be clear. I've spent more time around Democrats in the last three years than I have in my entire life. <laughs> like, they can't organize their way out of a paper bag most of the time. So, like, stop worrying about it so much, right? Um, and I love them. I think they're great people. But... There's a lot of excuses. Some of it is, look, I'm a Republican. He's a Republican. They're Republicans. Therefore, that's what I do. I give that maybe a third of people who vote. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, let's say let's say 30 percent for argument's sake. Then I think in the in the current Republican Party, though, Andy, there are look, if you're one of the 70 percent of self self-identified Republicans who say that you believe Donald Trump won the 2020 election. We're beyond sort of simple, you know, beliefs and we're into some sort of ideological brainwashing, right? Which is not unusual in the face of an ideologue, uh, you know, like like a Donald Trump. They, we've, history is replete with these people. But doesn't that doesn't that uh, make them dumb, though? I mean, am I oversimplifying this or if I think that like somebody rigged the, the Dominion old the Dominion machines and stole the bags of votes? For, I feel like I'd be dumb if I said shit like that. You know, it's so if you there's a there's a guy named Steve Hassan who was part of a cult mm -hmm. and got out. Mm -hmm. Right. And he is an incredibly intelligent individual. Right. And if a guy like Steve can get mm -hmm. sucked into one of these things, mm, I hear you. Anybody can. Mm -hmm. So you're saying and, it's brainwashing. And then it's it, it, yeah. And it's it, it's just it's the repetition. And that's what the right 
and the MAGAs do so well is they just go over and over and over again. They understand the pain points. They understand the fears. They understand the way to, especially with not young white men, although that mm-hmm. is an issue, but middle-aged white men, guys my age, Andy, right? I'm in my mid-40s, right? That this world is, you were in line to take over this world, and now you're not. Mm-hmm. Now, is there a racial component of that? There is. There's also a cultural component of it, but there's also a financial slash economic component of it, which is, um, are my kids going to do as well or better than me if those people's kids are on the are on the move? Does that make sense? Right. And so there's there's an economic mm-hmm. component to it. But again, they they drive that economic fear and bring it into a place that is completely unhealthy. I mean, there's a woman named Hannah Arendt who was a longtime political philosopher. And what she writes about um, in one of her books, and her, all her books are like 700 pages, talk about dense, um, is that when someone like a Trump exits the stage, oftentimes a, a large percentage of those people that we can't figure out why they're like this sort of have their Rip Van Winkle moment. Mm-hmm. They're sort of like, what what happened? What was that? Um, and and remember that there's used to be in politics like the persuasion aspect of something, you know, might start six months before an election, mm-hmm. right? We're going to go start talking to Andy about the things that he's worried about, the things that he cares about, so that we can persuade you, Andy, to come across to our side, so that when election day comes, you'll be there. Persuasion never stops now, right? It's twenty four seven. It's infinite. Um, you can't get away from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm in that business too, right? I'm in the persuasion business. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that I I know people who are Republicans, again, who are not dumb. But again, if you hear the same consistent message over and over and over mm-hmm. again that drives fear, resentment, and anger, you could be, you could be a literal rocket scientist mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter. In that time, mm-hmm. I, I think it um, still so does I, get I'm back. Always, I'm always hesitant. I'm always hesitant to to besmirch the intelligence of, because, again, I know so many of them. Yeah, no, no, and, and you, you know, you're raising a good point. In fact, I one of my closest friends was in a cult for 20 years. He, he was actually on this podcast uh, yeah. back in the summer. Uh, he's a, a New York lawyer. Uh, my friend Spencer Schneider, and he, you know, he he's a smart guy. Yet he was brainwashed for 20 years. So I I get that. I still I still you know, and this is just my opinion. I still come back to the the racial thing because you don't hear the MAGAs saying, "Boy, those young white Harvard graduates are putting me out of work. They're going to take away." It's always yeah. about the black and brown people. And the irony for me on this side of the aisle, the irony is that the very people who literally are putting them out of work, who are closing down the factories and shipping work overseas, uh are the very people they support, you know? So it's, right. it's, it, there's a twisted irony there that if only they, I always have this dream and it shows you how naive I am, but that one day the MAGAs are going to find out the truth about all the lies that Donald Trump fed them, that all the lies that his cronies have fed them and how they've been duped and lied to yep. and they'll be heartbroken. But I, I, then I go like, nah, that day's never going to come. Well, it will. The problem is, Andy, is that it often comes at a great deal of cost, either to the nation, mm-hmm. um, to a large block of people, um, 
to those people individually, mm-hmm. right? Um, again, it goes back to that whole idea of, you know, who are the good Republicans, right? I'm sure there are some. I'm sure that there are plenty that you and I interact with on a daily basis who are good family people, mm-hmm. right? You know, honest brokers at work uh, and in their social lives have lots of friends, um, right? Are, you know, otherwise upstanding members of their of their community. And I think that's the other part, too, that's hard, I think, for me to understand. Um, and remember, I used to be a Republican. I grew I literally, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I grew up in it. Yeah. What, what, um, what exactly are you now? Are you a Democrat now or an independent? No, I'm an independent. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I'm an independent. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't I, it's I, I'm not a Democrat because just the, I mean, for the same reason that I wouldn't be a Republican anymore. There are two things about Democrats that make me crazy. Um, and so I'm happy just, to live out here. Just on my two. Island. Yeah. Just yeah. There's, so I, I'm happy to live out here on my island, and I, and I think that uh, you know, listen, I go across the country, and you hear Republicans say I can't stay, stand my own party, but, and then I hear Democrats say I can't stand my own party, but, uh, mm-hmm. but the truth is, the, for, for the most part, those people will go back mm-hmm. to, you know, where they started. And look, political socialization is is always been a big deal, not only here but everywhere, but also, Andy, we got we're a, we're a binary system, right? Right? People only have two choices. Mm-hmm. Well, they have three choices. Republican, Democrat, or stay home. Right. Um, and, and you know, look, a lot of Americans stay home because they either they don't care mm-hmm. or they don't like their choices. And I, nobody or wants to be Or they think their vote Americans doesn't matter, which is, I think, a lot for, for a lot of people. Well, that's a lot. And that's, that's to me, the scariest part because we see that, you know, in, the, in whether or not it was in 2016, 2020, or 2022, your votes do matter. Mm-hmm. I mean, we call it the game of small numbers. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of these races – whether or not it was the 2016 campaign with Trump and Hillary or the 2020 campaign with Trump and Biden, these came down to tens of thousands of votes where, you know, if the tens of thousands of African-American voters who stayed home because they weren't going to have anything to do with Trump but didn't really want Hillary either mm-hmm. come out for Hillary, we're in a different – you and I probably – we're not having this conversation. Right. Right. Maybe we're talking, but it's not this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where, you know, if there's anything I can say is like – if you live in a state, and a lot of states do now have, you know, mail-in balloting because of, you know, there's still a lot of COVID protocols when it comes to balloting that are in place, like just request one, right? Go to your secretary of state's office because you can do it from your living room, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have to have, you know, take the kid to school late. You don't have to miss work. Just mm-hmm. do those things. Um, and that's what we say. Like we're, we're building out a coalition of, you know, people across the country, we've got 65,000 volunteers and, you know, more than 70 partner organizations through our union program, join mm-hmm. the union.us mm-hmm. for a plug. Um, because we understand that, like, there are a lot of constituencies out there. And we see, look, they, they are probably Democratic leaning, Andy, but at, at this point, like, as they like to say, we'll work with anybody. Not everybody will work with us. And mm-hmm. that's fine. We don't care. So what, um, are, the, what are the two things we, that you don't like about Democrats that drive you crazy? Oh, um, you know, one of it is we're so good looking. Well, yeah, I mean, well, look, that's not a high bar for me. Um, (laughs) No, one of it is the the superiority complex that drives me nuts. Um, You know, and then the second one is like um, is related to that, which is like, you know, politics is a fight. Right. Um, This is about values. Mm -hmm. Um, And you have to you have to be willing to espouse values that are for the greatest number of people possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think sometimes there is a, 
there is a strong, it wasn't invented here idea, right? So therefore we don't want to hear it and, or it's not perfect. Therefore we don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. Right. And that kind of, I appreciate in some ways the idealism of it. Um, I don't appreciate the elitism of it. And Mm -hmm. I think that does turn a lot of Americans off. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I, I generally think that, you know, Democrats tend to be good people. I think they are firm in their beliefs, but they're also not great storytellers mm-hmm. um, because they want to, they, they too often, it's ironic for a, for a group of people who the trope is they want to fall in love, not fall in line. Right. Uh, they often think too much with their head and not mm-hmm. with their heart. I, I agree with you. I think you're, you're spot on with your two things. I actually have a, a few more on my list, but, but I want, <laughs> I want to ask you about messaging in a second, but tell me about Resolute Square. What is that about? Sure. Your, your new media company initiative so you know we we were talking a little bit about andy before this about the the right-wing media machine you've Mm -hmm. got fox Mm -hmm. oan uh you know um rumble truth social Mm -hmm. dan bongino mark levin like you name like they just sprout up like mushrooms they're everywhere um and there's really not and remember that they're they're not conservative these are not conservative outlets they're not Republican mm-hmm. outlets, right? They are authoritarian outlets. Mm-hmm. They want to push voters, Americans, into a place where they will willingly vote for the person who's going to take away their democracy, right? That's willingly, willingly going to take power, right? And it looks most, most, most democracies fall now at the ballot box, not at the end of a gun, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so. We see that you know there's MSNBC and there's other sort of left-leaning outlets, but the answer to authoritarian messaging is not democratic messaging, is not liberal messaging, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's pro-democracy messaging and debunking and going out and finding ways to punch these people in the nose, mm-hmm. right, and exposing them for who they are. Because what what the right-wing media set needs to do is it needs to keep its people inside this bubble. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it must just like the cult thing. Right. They have to stay inside this hermetically sealed space, because if you get out into the world and there have even been studies on this, um, you do start to wake up. The, the sort of awakening process happens pretty quickly for, you know, it could be somewhere between two and seven percent. But again, in a, in a game of small numbers, Andy, that's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so we said, OK, we have to find. Just like I, I try to do with the Lincoln Project podcast, people who are experts in this field, who understand what they're doing, why they're doing it, and how to make sure that if, when, when and if you see it, you understand what it is and don't fall for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, on a daily basis, um, you know, we're going out there. I just, I just released a piece. I don't know when, when this episode's going to drop, but I just released a p- piece about the myth of the quote unquote good Republican, mm-hmm. right? Um, and this is more along the lines of, of elected officials, especially those in Washington, which is as a former Republican, I can tell you, like, they're all fruit of the same poison tree now um, that you do, none of them. If you're still in Washington, D.C., um, you have made some compromise with MAGA. Mm-hmm. You have made some compromise with any Democratic forces. Mm-hmm. There's maybe, you know, maybe Mitt Romney right is on that list who it hasn't david valadeo from california who hasn't but the rest of them are gone mm-hmm. right either voluntarily or like Booted liz out. cheney mm-hmm. um lost her primary adam kinzinger was written out of his district like they were the only ones who were both republicans and conservatives look 
I've known Liz. I used to work for her dad years and years ago, 22 years ago, right? Um, they're more conservative than I am by a long shot, but at least I know what they believed in. And when the time came, they stood up for what mattered, mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. Um, and that's and that's what matters. And so we want to make sure that we are able to, you know, try and counteract in our own way. And we are growing every day um, to make sure that, again, we are spreading the gospel of democracy, because as President Biden said in his State of the Union, with democracy, anything is possible and without it, nothing is. And that is true. And mm -hmm. I think that is also, you know, in 2021, we started, we said that the, the th that the most important thing on the ballot in 2022 in the midterms last year, Andy, was going to be democracy. And people are like, nobody cares. Nobody knows what it means, yada, yada, yada. And you know what? Labor Day of 22, Joe Biden's talking about the importance of American democracy. November 1st of 2022, the president of the United States is talking about the, you know, the importance of democracy and exit polls. Democratic voters are saying we got to save democracy, mm -hmm. right? Like we've been doing this a long time. Like, I, you know, sometimes we say we're sick of being right. But we also know <clears throat> that it's the only thing big enough to create an umbrella where people like you, where people like me, where people like Liz Cheney and, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez can all stand underneath it together and say we're going that way. Mm -hmm. Now, once – look, once we get to where we need to go, let's have those knockdown dragout fights about – you know, issues of principle, issues of ideology, issues of policy. I, I'd love to have those. And remember that for all of the talk about the good old days, the only thing that made the good old days the good old days was that, like, politicians, Republican, Democrat, and otherwise, like, lived in reality. Like, they, they said, okay, you know, when Ray, Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill made a deal on taxes, right, to raise taxes in the 80s, it wasn't because – you know, Reagan loved taxes, right? Um, but because he understood that, like, oh, wait, we can't, like, the deficits we have now, that generation couldn't imagine, mm -hmm. right? They just couldn't imagine. They also couldn't imagine a lot of the stuff that we have dealt with in the last 20 years either, right? It's just, it, the world has changed so quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, this idea is, oh, we need to be willing to work together. We do. The problem is, is that when you have one party that is fundamentally anti-democratic, um, until you render them useless in a political setting and and harmless such as it is in a political setting there's only one fight and it's not right versus left or democrat versus republican it's de it's democracy versus authoritarianism and so resolute square is another front from our perspective in that fight so i want to ask you in our remaining time about a couple of the big uh items in the news uh you mentioned the state the state of the union what did you, what did you think of biden's address um, from a historical perspective thought, and from in terms of what he needed, what marks sure. he needed to hit. I thought it was a brilliant opening salvo for, for Biden's 2024 presidential campaign. And he will run again. It's a matter of when he announces. Mm -hmm. It was very well constructed from a policy perspective, from a political perspective, uh, by the people at the White House who understood what they needed to do to deliver a narrative, to, to push a message. Um, and it was very well delivered by the president. And um, it was great because it gave – they knew that there were times when the Republicans would go crazy. And this is where it's one thing to write it on the page. It's another thing to have the person delivering it be fast enough on his feet at 80, right, to take advantage of it, which is once he realized – because he's been doing this longer than any of these people. And he's been to more, you know, I mean, 
with the exception of, you know, Dianne Feinstein, he's been to more States of the Union addresses um, than anybody. He realized, oh, wait a second, I got him. And he led him into this box canyon, right, on Social Security and Medicare. Mm -hmm. And like that will be that will be a moment that Biden understood his moment and took advantage of it that will launch a thousand ads mm -hmm. in the next 18 months. Well, yesterday he was um, on the so stump and he said excellent. he said uh, Republicans have a dream of cutting Social Security and Medicare. If that's your dream, you're, I'm your worst nightmare. Like he's already yeah, and, and, crafting the message, which I think is pretty, pretty masterful. It is. And it's interesting because, you know, if if to get a little nerdy here with you for a second, Andy, is that Social Security and Medicare, what we call entitlements, right, was for decades called the third rail of American politics, right? If anybody goes near it, they get fried. Mm -hmm. From about 2005, when right after George W. Bush's reelection to about the 2012 presidential campaign, um, when when Romney and Paul Ryan were on the ticket, um, you know, there was it was it was a debate. Bush said, let's privatize it, got roundly slapped by everybody because they are, and then but that that sort of was in the ether. Right. The sort of, mm -hmm. OK, you know, let's put it into private accounts, yada, yada, yada. But after the 12 campaign, it really disappeared as an issue for a decade. Mm -hmm. um, last year, Rick Scott, um, Senator Rick Scott from Florida, who was running the Republican Senate campaign at that point, came up with this whole idea of like skin in the game and sunsetting every government program every five years so that Congress had to renew it. Well, this was, you know, this was, you know, a bunch of people sitting in a conference room thinking they were really clever. What they didn't realize was that like, well, that means Social Security and Medicare too. And so the Republicans brought this back up, right? Like, I think the Democrats would have been happy to, to you know, either let it lay fallow or maybe have a real discussion about reform, which it probably will need, right, All for all things considered. Um, because, you know, whether or not it's 2027 or 2030, 2035, whatever the trust funds, right? I mean, we're all mm -hmm. it, it's we're always up against this thing. Um, but they the Republicans gave Democrats and guys like us, because remember, it's less for me. It's not about what, you know, Social Security policy or entitlement policy. It's what cudgel did they give me to beat them over the head with? <laughs> right. And this is a good one mm -hmm. um, because more older Americans still vote in higher numbers than anybody else. Mm -hmm. And so it's one of those things where now it's not about the debt ceiling. It's about entitlements, right? And this is, this is another thing about the folks at the White House, which is brilliant, which is if you don't increase the debt ceiling, you're going to harm Social Security and Medicare payments. Is that really what you're going to do? And that's why you can see, first of all, Mitch McConnell has no love for Kevin McCarthy. Certainly Chuck Schumer has no love for Kevin McCarthy. McCarthy made his own bed, and they're happy to let him, you know, sort of twist because he gave into the maggot, right? And so I'm happily – I've known the guy for years. I'm happy to watch him twist too. Mm -hmm. And so he's desperate, Andy. He's desperate for somebody to bail him out because here's what we know. Whether or not it was the last time we, we flirted with a default or any time the Republicans have chosen to shut down the government, which are two different things, but they sort of – in voters' minds, I think, feel a little bit the same – it always blows up in Republicans' faces. Mm -hmm. They're always the one that do does it, and it always blows up in their faces because at the end of the day, most Americans don't want anarchy, right? They want to know that their government is doing what it's supposed to do. And the debt ceiling's a real thing because you know if we default again, it makes life more expensive for everybody. And of course, to your earlier point about you know voting for your own self-interest, 
it makes those with the least, you know, have to pay the most. And that's bad policy and bad politics. Yeah. The debt ceiling is definitely McCarthy's number one problem. I think his number two problem is George Santos. Where do you see that going? I have a little bit of a different view on Santos, which is I think that for a guy like McCarthy, who's only got nine votes to begin with, he needs the guy. And it also lets the press corps chase, you know, I mean, you know, he, you know, in like dog races where they have like, like fake rabbit <laughs> that goes down the side of the track. Santos is the rabbit, mm-hmm. right? And right. the press corps, or the, the greyhound chasing it, right? And I think McCarthy's probably perfectly happy to let that, let that happen because again, here's the thing about a Santos, like he's going to lose in two years, right? Whether or not it's to a, a, a primary challenger mm-hmm. or if he somehow managed to script through a primary to a democratic challenger, like his, his district is embarrassed. Right. And, and people don't like being embarrassed by their representatives. And so he's 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 short for this world anyway. And if he's perfectly willing to act as a distraction because he can't help himself, I think McCarthy's probably fine with that. But even but and I agree with that. But then there's the flip side, which is he's he's the poster child for everything wrong with the Republican Party today. Isn't that great? I mean, it's shitty for the institution, but isn't that great for Democrats for the next two years? It is. It is. But this is, again, in, you know, I've said this, I say this almost every day now, Andy, when you make a deal with the devil, mm-hmm. right, or in this case, multiple devils, you have to decide which devil you're most OK with on any given day. Mm-hmm. And um, McCarthy's trying to get through every day. Right. He's trying to get through every day. He's not at this moment in time worried about the generic ballot for the 2024 race. He will be sometime probably in August or September, right? But for now, he's just trying to make it through the day. Mm-hmm. Speaking of the, uh, speaking of the devil, uh, he, I, I got to point this out because you tweeted, you responded to a Lauren uh, Boebert tweet, I think yesterday or the day before. She was okay. in her usual flame-throwing manner of like, oh, Fetterman brought a yeah. murderer to the, to the State of the Union. And you tweeted, quote, you're the one who's, who, whose husband exposed himself to minors in a bowling alley, yes? Like, that was epic, in my opinion. I take, see, it she didn't res- is, so I take it she didn't respond. She didn't, but this is the kind of thing, going back to, like, how we see the world, right? Um, is, that a, is that a particularly classy thing to say? It's not. For who, you um, or her? But it's also, well, both. But mine, uh, look, I I, 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 I when it When in Rome, to, man. Well, that's the thing, though, is... Is that what I want to be tweeting about? Should I be tweeting at all? No, it's a it's a cesspool. It's a you know I don't know if it's a waste of time. It's not the real world, but it is real. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the kind of hypocrisy you have to call out, which is like you're not okay either, right? And sometimes you know people like don't climb down to their level. Um, there's that great um, you know I don't know if you if you've watched Andor right the Star Wars show, but um, there's that great speech I think in the last episode is like. You know, sometimes you have to use the weapons of your opponents against them. Mm-hmm. I don't feel good about it. I know that it's probably not good for me or good for my soul, but occasionally, like, this is what you got to do, right? I mean, I remember just as an aside, Andy, Rick Wilson and my co-founder and I being at all these lovely salons in 2018 and 2019 about how you're going to beat Trump and this and that, and they're going to make him look small and make him, you know, show that he's a loser and all this. And, like, we're shaking our heads like, you guys don't have any idea what you're up against. You don't have any, you're going to have to go and you're going to have to punch this guy in the face. You're going to have to stay in his face. And if that means that you got to crawl into the mud with him, 
That might have to be the way it is. And that's still what we do. Yeah. Right? Well, we look, never let that guy go. As a Democrat. And we're never going to let any of them go. But that's but one, that's that can be exhausting. But two, also, you have to be willing to say, is this how I'd prefer to spend my day being the anthropologist of the worst people in the world? No, but it's where we are. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, first of all, to your credit, I doubt you're spending your whole day doing it. But I think a, 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 a well-placed, well-timed punch in the face or in the nose, I think you've actually punched twice today, which I really appreciate. Um, I think it's, you know, it, 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 it's warranted. As a Democrat, I've always thought that you guys uh, back in the day and even still today, Republicans know, you know, they bring guns to a gunfight. They don't bring switchblades to a gunfight. And I think sometimes you have to beat these people down because, I mean, her, her tweet was offensive on its own merits. But then the fact is um, uh, this guy, uh, Dennis Horton, him and his brother were pretty wrongfully accused of murder, spent 28 right. years. Fetterman brought him to the to the State of the Union because he w w is a symbol of what's wrong with our judicial, our justice system. So th mm -hmm. the whole thing is convoluted. But, um, but, but see this, so there was a, just, you know, so I lived in California for 10 years and um, there's a group out there and I think a lot of states have them. There might be a national group too called the California Innocence Project. And all they do is work on getting- yep. Uh, wrongfully convicted people out of prison. Mm -hmm. And I remember I was working in an office once and I had their T-shirt on. And this woman goes, you like them? And I said, they're trying to get innocent people out of jail. Awful. Like, that's, not, that's, that's not a liberal thing. In fact, that's a conservative thing, right? A wrongfully imprisoned person is government overreach, which neither conservatives nor libertarians should want anything to do with. But that's where we are. Oh, wrongfully convicted? Well, he's black, he's Latino, or he's whatever. Mm -hmm. he, if he didn't do that, Andy, he did something, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so, you know, from my perspective, you know, we need more of that. Um, you know, there, there are more and more stories of, of stuff like that happening, predominantly uh, to African-American men, mm -hmm. more broadly to, to people of color. That's not, not a secret. Right. That's not a statistic. That's not a statistical anomaly. That's how the system has worked and probably for the most part still works. And and so from my perspective, Fetterman is highlighting something that I would venture to say the vast majority of Americans agree with. This person was accused and convicted of a crime they didn't commit. Should that person be in prison? The answer should be no. Yeah. And that's not that's not a wacky. That's not a radical idea, Andy. But that's where Demo that's where Republicans like Bobert won it, which is if you're in jail, you probably deserve it, even if you didn't do the thing we got you for. Right. Well, I enjoy your tweets, and you should keep you should keep tweeting. Let's uh, <laughs> shift shift gears for a second and talk about Trump. Um, sure. I don't want to ask you all the usual stuff that everybody asks and talks about. You know, uh, is he going to be indicted? Blah 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 blah. All that stuff. But I did hear you on your podcast talk about something very interesting, which is the the, the concept of third party candidates and how that could impact Trump and. To paraphrase what you said, all, all but guarantee that he ends up in the Oval Office again. Explain what you're concerned about with third parties. So just to, just in full disclosure, Andy, before between Trump's election and when we started the the um, Lincoln Project in late 2019, I spent about three years, two and a half, three years in the independent and political reform space. 
you know, open primaries, uh, redistricting reform, all that kind of nerdy stuff that that does really matter. And very, very dedicated people work on it every day. I also, you know, worked for a group that tried to start a third party. We got a third party in one state, New York. Uh, we got it in 2018. It disappeared in 2022, right? Um, and so, you know, but there's always been this, you know, oh, you know, Americans want more choices. They always do if you ask them, do I, would I rather have another choice? Yes. Would you vote for that other choice? No. Why? Because I don't want my vote to be wasted. Okay. But in the context of a presidential campaign, Andy, the issue is, is that I believe that if you found a conservative Democrat or a quote unquote, never Trump Republican, that there would be more there would be more conservative democrats that would be likely to peel off to that person than there would be republicans right who would peel off to that person because republicans vote as a block and they vote in high numbers right um they would see that person whoever it was as if it was a republican they'd see them as a traitor right or as not you know not a not uh you know not you know, with the cause or, you know, mm -hmm. they, they'd line up behind Trump because they'd want Trump to win. Um, and if it was a conservative Democrat, Republicans are going to be, like, OK, well, I don't I don't like Donald Trump. I don't really like Joe Biden. But, you know, Joe Manchin seems like he's close enough. So in that in that context, right, the votes that get siphoned off to that third party candidate, I believe, would benefit a Donald Trump, mm -hmm. which would give him the access, would give him the ability, I should say, to be back in the Oval Office. If even if you get on the ballot in all 50 states, right, and that's a whole mind-numbing process and conversation, you still have to win a plurality, right? You don't have to get to 50% plus one, but you got to win more votes than the other two guys. Mm -hmm. You're not. That's not going to happen. You're not going to get to 43%. Mm -hmm. You're not going to get to 45%. Um, that means you're just sucking those votes off of one side or the other. And again, my position is, my belief is that that will redound to Trump's advantage or a Republican's advantage. Um, what I'm saying is I'm theoretically okay with the idea of more and better choices, not only at the presidential level, but also at every level. But in this time, why take that chance? Mm -hmm. If we believe, as I do, and we do as the Lincoln Project, that 2024 is the next most important election in our lifetimes, and I wish we could get to one that wasn't, um, then why would you take that chance? Why now? It's like, hey, you know what, guys? The house is engulfed in flames. How about let's put a bathroom in, mm -hmm. right? Like, it's just totally, like, stop. Don't do that, right? Don't get off topic. Um, and that's the difference, I think, between being a pro-democracy advocate or activist and a pro-democracy organization and a, and a, and a party-based organization, mm -hmm. which is like, in my mind, like, Joe Biden versus Donald Trump is a no-brainer, is a no-brainer. Donald Trump, you know, Joe Biden versus Donald Trump the first time was a no-brainer. Mm -hmm. um, Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump in 2016 was a no-brainer because we all thought she was going to win, right? The other part, too, is like, if everything is so topsy-turvy, why throw another variable into the mix that you can't control, right? Well, but fuck what you said um, it before about Democrats. One of the things on my list, uh, maybe number three, would be, you know, the high and mighty protest vote really smart people who are just, I'm angry and I'm going to vote for, you know, Jill Stein and fuck up everything, you know? 
Well, but also, I mean, look, this the the strength of the Democrat Big D Democratic coalition is its diversity. It is a very diverse coalition, uh, racially, economically, educationally, geographically. The the weakness, though, is that same diversity, which is if you live in New York, San Francisco, L.A., Washington D.C., wherever, you have a much different worldview, right, about everything, than the 56-year-old black guy in Detroit, right? Um, I mean, look, I, in in late 21, I met with a couple of pastors, and and I heard the same that black pastors, I heard the same thing from both of them. They're not going to vote for the Republican because they know what they get, but I'm not sure if I can get them to vote for the Democrat because their lives don't change. Mm-hmm. They look out the window year in and year out, and nothing changes for them. But th- so that does not speak to what you were again? just saying about the importance of the election. And, and I, I see, and you're right, you know, Republicans tend to vote in blocks and they, they toe the party line. Democrats get off on tangents for whatever reasons. I can't tell you how many, you mentioned Cheney before, I can't tell you how many conversations I had with people, arguments, where it's like, yeah, I know she's vehemently anti-abortion, I know she's a conservative, mm-hmm. but she's defending democracy and she's the right. only one in her caucus doing it, except for Kinzinger. It doesn't matter what her opinions on abortion. The first thing is to preserve democracy. Smart Democrats could not get over. They they couldn't see that importance that you're talking about. The the importance but, but of making f- sure he's not around anymore. But a friend of mine did some focus groups with African American voters in Philadelphia last year, and they asked that they asked the the these were African American Democrats, Democratic women, I think. Who do who are the who are a couple of people you admire the most. You know what the answers were? Michelle Obama and Liz Cheney. Black female voters in Philadelphia, those were the two people that listed most. Michelle Obama and Liz Cheney, two people who could not have less in common across the board about anything, really. But you know what? They saw Michelle Obama as someone who was strong, smart, fought for her principles. They saw Liz Cheney as someone who was strong, smart, and fought for her principles, Mm -hmm. right? This stuff matters, right? It does matter. And and so, you know, again, getting back to your third party thing, if you want to elect Donald Trump a second time, like just say that's what we're trying to do here, right? And and get out get it get it over with. Um, because this is not the time to do it. Um, is there ever gonna be a good time to do it? I don't know. I used to be look, I worked for Howard Schultz in twenty nineteen, right? Um, because we didn't know if if it was gonna be Donald Trump versus Bernie Sanders. Right. Did we want to be the one that could potentially, Mm -hmm. you know, try and take votes Mm -hmm. away from Trump Um, because Democrats weren't going to go to Sanders, theoretically. Um, How about this scenario? I had a change of heart. Is this is how likely is this scenario, which would fall under the I just want to blow shit up umbrella? What's the likelihood of Donald Trump losing the nomination and running as a third party candidate (laughs) without giving two shits whether he helps elect a Democrat? Well, that's that's a different dynamic that that actually I think would reelect Joe Biden um, because Trump doesn't Trump's not a Republican. He's never cared about the Republican Party. Clearly, look what he's done to it. Right. He's besmirched it and and soiled it in every possible way. Um, But he wouldn't necessarily have to run as a third party candidate. He could just sit in Mar-a-Lago and say, 
Ron DeSantis is anti-MAGA. Right. Ron DeSantis is a wolf of sheep in sheep's clothing. Right. Ron DeSantis is in the in the you know pocket of the big Washington establishment and money and everything else. And again, you know, there was a survey out by the folks over at the Bulwark last week or the week before that said 28% of self-identified Trump voters said that if he lost the nomination, they'd go with him to a third-party effort. Mm -hmm. That's 28%. If you halved that number and it was only 14, Mm -hmm. it'd be more than enough Mm -hmm. to, to make the Republican lose. If it was only 7%, it would be more than enough to make the Republican lose. If it was only 3.5%, Andy, it would be more than enough to make the Republican lose. It's so fascinating. This is, again, back, deal with the devil. Like, this is the person you chose to get into bed with, mm-hmm. right? This is the person you chose to follow. Don't be surprised when everything that he does is for his own benefit and not for yours. Yeah. Because that's always who he's been. And so anybody who's like, oh, you know, the party's moving on from Trump, blah, 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 blah. We're just ready to move on. They're selling you something. And you know what it is? It's utopia. It doesn't exist anymore. The Republican Party that I grew up in, Andy, is never coming back, mm-hmm. right? It's never coming back. Can it be something else? It could be. Could it even be a healthy part of a two-party democracy? It could be, but not in 2024, 2026, or 2028. I mean, we're talking years of destruction and reconstruction politically to get it back to a place where, you know, again, and Trump probably does have to leave the field um, in, a, in a meaningful way. Either he says, I'm out of politics and I don't want anything to do with it, or you know he shuffles off the mortal coil. But even then, it's probably several years before the hagiography of everybody, because here's the thing. They all want, they all know they, they can't live with him and they can't live without him. You can't win a primary without him and you can't win a general with him. Right. This is what they've gotten themselves into. I got no sympathy for him and I will do everything to make sure that we condense as much as we can their ability to do bad things to Americans either nationally or in their states. Well, we'll, we'll end the political chat on that. My final question to you is uh, the second window into the soul question. Music is a, is a real deep window into the soul. So give me Reed sure. Allen's top five musical artists of all time. Oh, of all time. Uh, um, well, number one for me is a relatively recent addition um, to the musical scene. And what I mean by that is like last 10 or 15 years, a guy named Jason Isbell mm-hmm. uh, from Alabama. Mm-hmm. Um, he lives in Nashville now. Um, oh gosh. Uh, of all time, I, I grew up a U2 fan. Mm-hmm. So U2 is always going to be on the list, even if that's really boring. Um, see, I used to have a bunch of records on my wall and so that made it easier to think about. Um, listen to you using that hip language like records. I know. Um, oh gosh, that's, that's a hard one. Um, <laughs> Beatles. Uh, uh, you know, I I grew up a Beatles fan because my dad was a Beatles fanatic, mm-hmm. right? So like, I will always have a place in my in my heart for the Beatles. Um, like, I think they were a, a, an incredible band. But if I was gonna say, if I had to add the a Beatles adjacent, it would be George Harrison, mm-hmm. um, who okay. I think, uh, you know, his double was it a double or mm-hmm. triple album? Mm-hmm. All things must pass. After he left the Beatles, is an incredible work. Amazing. Um, um uh is it not sam smith what's his name uh um a change is gonna come um well well uh oh yeah yeah i know you sam cook um no sam cook thank you sam Mm -hmm. cook is definitely on my list Mm -hmm. um 
and then um, for a little jazz, a little Sidney Bechet. I think. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you didn't uh, you didn't enter Harry's place, Harry's house. You're not a Harry yeah. Styles fan. No Taylor Swift. Uh, I like Taylor Swift. I think she's I think she's an incredible entertainer. Mm -hmm. Um. Harry Styles. I mean, I look. I've aged out of the uh, Harry I was, Styles. I was. I was joking. I mean, look. I, I look. I mean, I am firmly, you know, in the yacht rock. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm the youngest end of the yacht rock generation, right? Um, but I do like singer songwriters a lot. Um, I love those guys that are able to tell stories, mm -hmm. which is why you know whether or not. I mean, Jason Isbell is the newest mm -hmm. sort of Americana artist, but we Jerry get, we Jeff get Walker, him, Robert O'Keefe. We get him a lot you know, when I ask this question. Reed, you've been very really? generous with your time. Uh, I really appreciate it. It was a fun conversation, and I hope you'll come back. And good, you know, uh, good luck with all the stuff you're doing. Um, and uh, uh, maybe we can talk about it all again next time. I hope so. Thanks, Andy. All righty. Bye-bye. Before we close out, I just want to give a special nod to uh, songwriter, uh, lyricist, uh, and musical genius, Burt Backrack, who died yesterday at the age of 94. Uh, his music has been uh, a backdrop to my life ever since I was a, a little tot growing up in the, in the sixties and early seventies, um, raindrops keep falling on my head. My favorite song, you guys, Matt, Jenny, Close. Jen, <laughs> I, keep, <laughs> I want to keep calling you Jenny. I don't know. Jenny now. from the block. Jenny from the block. Close to you mm. by the Carpenters. Great. I, I'm going to go with raindrops. Mm -hmm. And, and I just, I, I learned this today that you know that song from the eighties, uh, naked know. eyes, always something there to remind me. That's a Dion Warwick cover. Like he, it's unbelievable. Burt Backrack, may he rest in peace. Well, that's episode forty-one. If you like what you've been hearing, and even if you don't, let us know. We appreciate the feedback. You can leave us a message at eight four five three zero seven seven four four six. Email us at backroomandy at gmail .com or tweet to me at Andy Ostroy. And when you listen, take a moment and rate and review. Those things are very helpful. At this point, I want to thank my co-producer, engineer, and editor, Maddie Rosenberg, associate producer, Jan Hamoud, Cricket Langell for our artwork, Andy Hollander for our kick-ass music, Patricia Wind and the Epicurean for the Backroom Studio, and a big thank you again to our guest, Reed Gallen. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week. <laughs>